Dr. Nate Shanock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name. And Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. Well, we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm part of our growing research team. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like Lou. I'm also autistic. This is our 30th episode of the podcast, The Brain on Autism, featuring advisory board member Dr. Stephen Shore and my own very own co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock. Both individuals are educators in their own right and compelling personalities, so make sure to stay tuned for their interviews on part A of the podcast. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment. On Part B, we'll reposit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things you would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. Here are some news and updates about the foundation. Tune into episode 29 to listen to our interviews with advisory board member Paul Morris and his brother Jesse, and with, for the very first time, special guest Sam Ells, host of Sam Sibs Stick Together and the older daughter of the Ells family. They talk about the qualities of siblinghood, the closest that they have to their brothers, and how being touched by siblinghood makes one an advocate for others with a disability, whether it be autism or anything else. Make sure to also listen to the rest of the program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. The bulk article for December, for I mean for September, will basically be about the CADI program. Now, the CADI program is our free program that is that stands for Collaborative Autism and Diagnostic Intervention. And it's an early intervention program that allows kids uh, up to age seven to be able to get that diagnosis of autism or to be able to figure out more about what's been going on uh, with themselves and and their families play a a big role in what we, in what happens with the program. It's a, you have a lot of different experts from a lot of different fields. And it's not just about, um, you know, getting the assessment. There's also some treatments that are done kind of along the way. And it's just a really, really good uh, program. And my interview with Dr. Christine Hansberger, who is a very, very special part of the program, will be in a blog article made public very, very soon. Um, And we hope that any one of you will be able to read it to understand how powerful and how greatly needed a program like Caddy is, especially if you had listened last last month or rather the episode that, uh, the prior episode um, where we did talk about uh, early intervention, and we did mention about the CADI program during that. So um, it's 
it's very, very important, especially if you want your child to uh, get the proper diagnosis before uh, sending the child off to the proper school that will be the best for that person since it is going to age seven. So um, that will be the blog article that will come out for the month of September. Um, so on September 18th, yes, the same day as major autism advocate Holly Robinson Pete's birthday was my mother's birthday. Um, not to cast a dark cloud at all, but it was also the same day that uh, famed guitarist Jimi Hendrix passed away in 1970. So, you know, you get a little, you lose a little too, but it's just very, very interesting on what happens on a day of a special event. Even during her formative years, she knew that she wanted to do something different. One of her first roles was as the sole female engineer for her division at Westinghouse. After spending four plus decades in the corporate world, she retired a few years ago and has been very supportive ever since. So, uh, Nate, uh, from what I've heard, from you your mother sounds like a wonderful woman and i'm pretty sure you've already talked about her maybe to death i'm not sure but do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about your mother yes i'd be happy to and first of all happy birthday to merrick's mother debbie uh she's a wonderful person i've gotten to to interact with her on several occasions and you know, she's very bright and um, she's kind and she she really brights, uh, she really brightens up a room. So as far as my, my mom, um, she is a wonderful person. She, I would say, raised me with a good set of values and she taught me from a young age the importance of treating other people with respect and also, you know, trying to, to empathize with other people, trying to take the perspective of others when you make decisions. And my mom is a very kind and caring person. Um, she raised me as well as my three sisters and she did it starting from a very young age. Um, they had my older sister, when she was about 22 years old. And I've always had a lot of admiration for her ability to start a family and, and parent so effectively at such a young age. So my mom is, is also a great person to talk about music, art, and, and movies with. She's very much a movie buff. So I think, um, Merrick, you guys would get along very well. And uh, um, you can decide um, because I know that there's another special birthday that came up. Um, but <laughs> it's really up to you to decide if you really want to address it. Um, <laughs> it was just something that I ran into and I thought to myself, I advertise so much about what my family's like, their birthdays, uh, anniversaries, all that. But I like to also have my co-host get a spotlight on his, you know, important people, I would say. So 
unless you know we should wait until much much later on maybe next year for that to be addressed merrick that's very good looking out you're a true friend for bringing this one up so i'd like to wish a happy belated birthday to my wife jen who celebrated her birthday on the 24th of this month and you know i can't uh even begin to express how much she means to me of course um we've known each other for almost 10 years now and we've developed such a, a wonderful relationship and and friendship and so yes uh, i'd like to wish a very happy birthday to her and happy to be able to announce that on the podcast thanks again merrick yeah because i'm pretty sure that she listens to every single episode that's been put out there so i just was making yeah. sure to keep it on standby so that she doesn't end up going and where was my birthday on here <laughs> so yeah. that's my way of looking out for you you really kept me out of the doghouse with this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, jokes aside. Um, yeah, my my wife is, is a wonderful person and um, she deserves all the happiness for her 29th birthday that she just celebrated. Yep, and I got to meet her and I will have to uh, agree with Nate that she is a wonderful person. Thanks, Merrick. And actually, interestingly enough, in this whole thing that we're doing today, she's an educator too. So, you know. She really has no excuse not to listen to this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Birthday shout out, interviews with educators. We've got the whole nine yards. Yeah, we definitely do. So, um, <clears throat> Other important events um, for this month is uh, we are going to cross the threshold into autumn. When the leaves will change color and moments will get cooler, it is also when our neck of the woods, South Florida, gets to be more in season for people to come on by. While we are in season, why not take a tour of our excellent campus and learn about everything we do around here? Even those who may come from afar may be interested in our global reach. It will also allow anyone listening to learn more about our vibrant fall rec schedule and how our educational system is working for this new semester. Please contact our senior events coordinator, Jen Nicholas, to reserve a spot for a tour. We try to have it on the first Wednesday of each month, but please register if you want to see our beautiful campus. And the last story I have of the foundation update is that the people have chosen and we have had two winners for the autism spectrum award the first winner is advisory board member dr carrie magro dr carrie magro is an award-winning professional speaker best-selling author and autism consultant to a number of media productions including love on the spectrum he started professional speaking nine years ago via the national speakers association and has spoken at over 900 events during that time in addition, Dr. Magro is CEO and president of KFM Making a Difference, a nonprofit organization that hosts inclusion events and has provided 86 scholarships for students of autism for college and counting since 2011. 
You can find his books on Amazon, which includes Defining Autism from the Heart and Autism and Falling in Love. He is based in Hoboken, New Jersey. And yes, his website will be on the show notes. Our second winner is Massachusetts native Gayasi Burke Abbotts. Gayasi Burke Abbott is a writer, public speaker, and autism self-advocate. In addition to serving on the boards, committees, and commissions of several autism and disability organizations, Gayasi is on the faculty of the LEND Leadership, Education, and Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities Program at Boston Children's Hospital and UMass Boston's Institute for Community Inclusion. He's contributed to and written articles for such publications as the Autism and Adulthood Journal and the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal. Recently, Gayasi published a book about his life called My, My Mother's Apprentice and Autistics Write a, Writes a Passage. He lives in Bedford, Massachusetts, and we will be sure to have a link to his website on our show notes also. Congrats on the winners of the Autism Spectrum Award for 2022. All winners get to attend the grand finale event, our biggest annual fundraising event, and get a free nomination to our advisory board. Yes, huge congratulations to our two winners, and please keep up the great work that you're doing. So for our first interview of today's program, we would like to introduce you to educator, author, public speaker, and advisory board member, Dr. Stephen Shore. Dr. Shore is an autistic professor of special education at Adelphi University. He has written books that include College for Students with Disabilities, Understanding Autism for Dummies, Ask and Tell, and Beyond the Wall. Beyond serving on our advisory board at the Elser Autism Foundation, he serves on the board of Autism Speaks and is one of the first two autistic board members in its history, looking to improve the, the potential of those on the autism spectrum. He once headed the Asperger's Association of New England and was on the board of the Autism Society of America. Welcome to the program, Dr. Stephen Shore. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Merrick. It's a pleasure to be here and always an honor to be involved with the ELS Foundation uh, whenever possible. Okay. Yes, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Shore. So first of all, I wanted to ask, over the course of your teaching career, have you noticed a shift in how college students think and feel about autism spectrum disorder? Would you say uh, yeah. that there's a larger interest in working with this population in today's world? In today's world, I would say yes. Uh, um, uh, when, I, when I was in college, uh, so little was known about autism that it could never even be thought or conceived that an autistic person could go to college. Um, after I graduated and then became a professor, there was more knowledge about uh, autism and autistic college students. Adelphi University had been running a program, I think for about five years when I had gotten there, specifically for supporting autistic students to be successful uh, in college. And as time went on, many, many more universities had established programs for supporting autistic uh, college students. It's becoming much more common and uh, more is being learned about supporting autistic students and greater numbers of professors are looking for ways that they can better support their autistic students. 
Yeah, that's that's terrific to hear. And I imagine it's been exciting for you uh, to to witness some of these changes taking place. Yeah, it, cer it certainly has. And uh, just like with uh, grade school and employment and other areas of life, uh, strategies that are developed to accommodate and support artistic uh, students often end up benefiting everybody else as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so I know if you don't all... mind me uh, interrupting a little bit, I, I don't wish to take away from this here, but um, how long have you been an educator, Dr. Shore? Um, a long time. I've been at my university, Adelphi University. I'm in my 14th year. Uh, before then, uh, before teaching special education at Adelphi University, I was a professor of music at a community college uh, in Boston. And I did that for about five years as well. So I guess I've been teaching at various colleges and universities maybe for 25 years or so. So you have definitely seen the change in all these different types of, uh, you know, the way people look, the way people analyze and even self-advocates themselves in the way autism is thought of. You probably have seen so much of it progress and change and evolve and, you know, within your life experiences as an, as an educator? Yeah, I, I certainly have. Uh, you know, greater awareness of autism, uh, an eagerness to uh, accept and support autistic students, and also increasing numbers of autistic professors as well. Yeah, and one of the cooler revolutions um, that, that's taken place as a result of that boost in awareness seems to be the inclusion of autistic um, staff and in a variety of different uh, work settings and, and, and types of jobs. And, uh, you know, I think that that speaks to this shift in seeing um, the benefits of neurodiversity and just everything that people with autism have to bring to the table. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good that you mentioned neurodiversity uh, because uh, that is a term that encompasses, actually encompasses everybody. Uh, the concept is that uh, the human gene pool is very, is diverse. And there are many different ways of thinking and processing information, and that's neurodiversity. Uh, when we talk about individual people or groups of people, uh, such as the autistic population, and also we could talk about um, other disabilities as well, uh, the term used is neurodivergent. And again, increasing awareness and numbers, number of people who are neurodivergent uh, and, and this acceptance of neurodivergence uh, is really good to see. Yeah, definitely appreciate you clarifying those terms for our listeners. You know, they, they will hopefully be terms that we hear about more and more in the years to come.
And on the topic of, of you being such a great educator, you know, I was hoping you could help us out with some key pieces of advice that you would offer for new educators that are beginning a career in teaching. Uh, well, some things that immediately come to mind uh, for advice is uh, one, get to know uh, people who are neurodivergent. Uh, here we're focusing on autism, so get to know people who are autistic, get to know autistic students. Ask them whether you're talking to an autistic student or otherwise a neurodivergent individual, how they best learn. And that is where you'll get your, your best information. Uh, one thing about that is particular to autism is that we are characterized by an extremely widely varying skill set, which means that the things we're good at, we're incredibly good at. They'll say it's visual processing. We can be really, really good at that. And that extreme ability and whatever that processing modality is, a learning style is, it often comes at the expense of other learning modalities. So whereas most people, if you think about what is your um, weakest learning modality, and let's just say it's, um, it's auditory. So if you see it, you learn it really well. If you do it, you learn it really well. But if you hear it, that's going to be more difficult. However, most people, even in their weakest area modality or learning style, it will still be good enough. It's functional enough to get them through life and to college and beyond. And all we need to do is think about individuals who assuming they don't have a math disability, who feels challenged by math and wish they were better at math or maybe didn't do well in school in math or struggled in math, your math is still good enough to get through life. But for someone who has a disability, and if we're talking about autism, let's say, you know, uh, let's say it, it is auditory processing, or let's say that it is a specific area such as math, the, Autistic person might also have a math disability. That area will be so challenging that it won't be functional. So what we may find is that in the autistic person, if auditory processing is the challenging area, it may be so challenging that it's, it can't, it's not really useful at all. So that's widely varying skill set is an important piece. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring up some of the different learning styles. And as someone who has recently graduated from a program in psychology, you know, I, I do really appreciate that we're starting to get better about customizing teaching approaches towards the strength of students, where um, a lot of professors, you know, unfortunately, will just... Um, you know, deliver a speech in unison with a PowerPoint. You know, it's nice to see professors mix in, you know, some different tactile um, exercises, um, you know, certainly adding uh, art and music into curriculums and just, yeah, like you were saying, trying to get, trying to appeal to all the different uh, learning styles. 
Yeah, and I think the more learning styles we can access as we develop curriculum to teach at the college level, and actually that can be expanded to all curriculum at any grade, educational level, the more, um, the more learning styles and different ways of learning that we can work into building the curriculum, the better off everybody will be. On that point, do you think it would be advantageous to have students take a learning style assessment to give right. the professor a better understanding of their own style? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I, I used to teach a class, it was an incoming freshman seminar class. So it's, it's one of the first classes the freshman would take on uh, entering the university. And uh, we had a lot of flexibility in what we'd focus on. And mine was learning how to learn. And one of the first things I had students do was an online uh, uh, learning style um, evaluation so that they could learn what were their strongest modalities and how they might learn, best learn using those modalities. So sure, that's very useful. And, us professors should also take this very same test because we often <laughs> fall into the trap of teaching in our strongest modality. So if we're visually based, which I am, and many of us autistic people are, I tend to be very visual and have a lot of pretty pictures on my PowerPoint and stuff like that. Uh, however, I also have to keep in mind that I'm going to have students in my class who learn differently perhaps by doing, perhaps to music, uh, perhaps auditorially. And so I need to um, work towards those learning styles as well. Very, very interesting. Yeah, that reminds me of, for one of my classes, I, I've had students take a personality assessment and we talk about whether they feel the results are accurate or not. And and I always make it a priority to take it myself because, uh, you know, in some ways you shouldn't ask your students to do things that you wouldn't uh, try yourself. Yeah, and that's right. So my last question for you is what challenges did you personally encounter throughout your studies? You know, again, we all have some challenges and how did you overcome them? Uh, well, cha my challenge, I think, was the greatest challenge was um, working with relatively unstructured information. And uh, that came up at the end of my doctoral program in music. So I had studied music education from uh, uh, the bachelor's all the way through the doctorate, finished my coursework, had good grades, had to take the comprehensives, and I found a persistent problem in analyzing music from the uh, romantic era. So it made me wonder if there was something haunting me from, uh, from, my, my, from my autism diagnosis. So I went and got a neuropsych exam and found out indeed the autism was still with me and it was affecting my learning in this way. And they recommended some fairly simple accommodations, but the school wasn't willing uh, to give them. 
So I knew that I could have had fun with the Americans with Disabilities Act and some lawyers and probably eventually gotten the degree after many years of legal you know, dealing with the, you know, with the legal system. Uh, or maybe I could do something else that was also interesting. And that was studying special education and autism more specifically. So I resolved that issue by defecting to the school of education to get my doctorate in special education. Well, I know I speak for us at the foundation and probably thousands of your students as well, but we're, we're pretty happy that when one door closed, another one opened up there. Yeah, it certainly did. And the choice that you made, actually, in a way, if you were to have gotten a team of lawyers and you would have, you know, litigated it out, that would have been, you know, a prominent thing. But what you ended up doing was impacting people on a wider scale than you probably would have ever imagined you would have done in the past. Because there are probably so many people out there who are like, I thank Dr. Shore for what he has done, whether it's the books or the education or whatever it is, you have probably touched a lot more people than if you had litigated it out the way you possibly could have done. Yeah, well, I think you're right about that. Um, I've been able to reach more people. Um, I still have my music and I still use it to give music lessons to autistic children. And one way that I think about is if I had gone the litigation route, um, both sides would have lost. And the school would have lost for reasons due to the Americans with Disabilities Act, but I also would have lost because it would have been extremely stressful and wasted a lot of time when I could be doing something else. So since I'm, and here I will go with my uh, group of questions. Um, So since you've been in the system of education for so long, can you tell us what are some common misconceptions of educating individuals with autism? Well, some misconceptions for related to educating autistic people is that autistic people cannot learn uh, they're not as smart as other people. Uh, autistic uh, students have no interest in interacting with their classmates. I think these are uh, three particularly uh, heinous myths about autistic individuals. I will definitely uh, agree with that notion. Um, because yeah, there are we we tend to I think I've mentioned this before, but we tend to value a lot of a person based on how they communicate with others, but we don't see that there's maybe more to a person than just the way that they communicate, and that there may be more going on than just the way they talk or the way that they maybe uh, verbalize or the way that they try to verbalize. And so I, I definitely, I, I think we kind of live in a communication-centric world, and I think that that's partially maybe a little bit why that uh, misconception exists. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, people, this is a um, verbal-based world. 
And for people who have difficulty in speaking, using spoken language, uh, that can be a real challenge. Whereas I know many autistic people who don't speak uh, easily have the same range of intelligence as uh, everybody else. So um, I would like to give you a question based a little bit on experiences that I've had with a, a guy that I used to know from school um, because he and I talked and he's uh, when he talked about teaching, I thought to myself, well, this is something that I wanted to ask him. And he responded kind of in the affirmative because I know that there is so much stimuli in the atmosphere and so much social engagement as a professor. That's kind of one of the reasons why, even though people in the past have wanted me to become a teacher or an educator, but it's also one of, but it's one of the reasons why I'm really not too sure if I would even go that route. How have you been able to adapt to it for so long while having autism? And uh, one of my old high school friends has Asperger's and was in the middle of a teaching career last time I checked, which was difficult for him, as I would expect. Yeah, well, teaching, yeah, just like with anybody else, teaching can be very challenging for some people, and some people it really works very well. And yes, there's a lot of stimuli to it. So it depends on individual profiles. And I know for me, um, for a long time, I've always wanted to teach. Initially, I thought it would be music. And I found uh, college level was easier for me than grade school level. Uh, and I remember when I first started at the Delphi University, uh, I approached teaching the same way that I'd done my presentations. Uh, doing, uh, which, were very, which was very didactic. I'd come in, show a PowerPoint, uh, tell a few jokes, student would laugh, students would laugh, maybe ask some questions, and then class is all done. Very much like the presentations I'd been doing for maybe 10 or 15 years before I started the university. Uh, what I also noticed is that before class started, because I'd often get in early and set up, the students were talking very, seemed like they were talking very loud and engaging in um, what I felt was gratuitous social interaction. Went, okay, if you want to talk to each other, that's fine. It's before class, but you really are very loud. It's kind of hurting my ears. Uh, but I could always quiet them down pretty quickly and then we'd get on to the class. But one day I was, uh, curiosity got the better of me and I listened to what they were talking about. So by listening, I found that they were actually talking about course material, which made me think that, well, maybe the students would rather have a conversation about the course material instead of a lecture. So I changed my teaching styles, style uh, to become way less didactic and lecturing-like so trans I transitioned from being, you might say, a sage on the stage to a guide on the side, uh, which means that my, my role um, transitioned into being more of a facilitator and having discussions with students. And I felt uh, and still feel that as long as we cover the course material, 
if it's by discussion and that's what the students seem to want, then let's do that. And I found that worked out much better, which then um, uh, impacted my presentation style where my presentations often include a lot of discussion as well. I think you fell upon the title for your next book, Sage on the Stage to Guide on the Side. That would be a fantastic title to see on a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It rhymes. Yeah, maybe that will be. What a worthwhile topic also. You know, uh, I'm not that far removed from graduate school, and I remember the classes that were very discussion-based and, and used the Socratic method, which, you know, is based on questions and, and some level of, of debate between students. I always felt that I learned so much more from those classes. So that's a great message to share. Yeah, I think it's so much better when the students are actively involved. Um, right. Much better than uh, just having them passively soak up information, which doesn't really work very well anyways. Yeah, I think that one of my biggest difficulties, and this may sound like a small issue to many, but one of my biggest difficulties when transitioning from the, from kind of the structure of high school to college was that in college, you weren't necessarily expected or you weren't needed to raise your hand to answer a professor's question. And that really... Uh, boggled me for a while because I was all used to the structure in high school. If you want something, you raise your hand. If you need something, you raise your hand. And for all the improvisational, you know, shout out loud and that kind of thing. And I, I just, even today, if I want something, I raise my hand. So that felt like such a, such a transition for me. It is, it is a big decision. Yeah, it is a big transition. And um, many big transitions that are involved in uh, going from uh, high school to college. Uh, and that's one of them is uh, uh, there's less reliance on hand raising to somehow students magically seem to know when is a good time for them to talk and also when to wait. And it's this um, rhythm of back and forth, social rhythm, the interaction rhythm that can be very challenging for us autistic people. So I know that we want to use part of this program or at least the finale of the program so that you can advertise to us all, you know, about what you are uh, uh, up to, you know, books, um, papers, anything that you would like to uh, showcase on our uh, program. We would love to hear about what's currently going on with uh, what will be upcoming in uh, the world of Dr. Shore. All right, sure. Well, there's certainly plenty to talk about. Uh, traveling has resumed. Uh, speaking at conferences. So for example, uh, I am talking to you from Bonn, Germany, uh, where I'm going to give a keynote presentation, a pre-conference pre workshop, and some other presentations on using strength-based supports to 
educate uh, grade school students on the autism spectrum. So a lot of travel, I've traveled to, actually Germany will be the 53rd country I will have traveled to to present on autism. And by the end of the year, I will have gone to a number of other countries, including uh, Kazakhstan, um, Bulgaria. And uh, when we get into the spring and towards the summer, uh, other locations uh, such as uh, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, and Montenegro. Uh, another project that I'm involved in is that a colleague, Robert Nassif and I, have been asked to develop a training program for the state of Qatar. The government of Qatar asked us to develop a training program for inclusive employment uh, so that their autistic population can have meaningful employment as well. Another area that I've been focused on is participatory research. And that is actively and meaningfully engaging autistic individuals in all aspects of research. If, we, if the research is going to occur about autistic people, then we need to involve autistic people to the extent of our interest, to the extent of our ability in all aspects of research, ranging from initial conception of an idea to making those proposals and submitting them, uh, being involved uh, in uh, design and implementation of research, analysis, and finally a uh, dissemination of the results. And we're seeing more and more of that as well. Um, meaningful involvement of autistic people in research. So that's what comes up. Uh, that's pretty much what's on my mind these days. Well, we really do greatly appreciate you joining us um, and finding the time to talk to us um, with all of your obligations and all the exciting things that you're doing. So thanks for the great interview. Oh, my pleasure. Always great talking to you, uh, Merrick and Nate, and I look forward to seeing you at the upcoming um, uh, Ernie L's uh, conference uh, this March, I believe it is, uh, this spring. Yep, and I uh, can't wait to see you there too, uh, the recreation conference. Uh, that should be a wonderful time, and we are definitely going to advertise it more and more on this uh, podcast as the date comes nearer, because it will certainly be such a major uh, conference for us. Yeah, I look forward to that time. So uh, before we go, I'd like to thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast and for taking your time to answer our questions. It has been a great time having you on. Um, and uh, uh, Nate, do you have anything you would like to say to Dr. Shore before we uh, end this interview? Yeah, just thank you again for the message you're sharing and for helping to educate. Uh, it was incredible to hear um, about the potential of the program in, in Qatar. I think it just shows the, the shift, uh, the global shift in 
what we were talking about as far as people just having, you know, a much keener interest in neurodiversity and wanting to really increase the opportunities available for um, individuals of all, um, you know, neuro, neurodivergence. Well, it's been my pleasure and always a pleasure talking with you both. All right, Thank take care. Yep, Thanks, take you care. Too. Okay, so <clears throat> my second interview, I would like to talk about a near and dear friend of mine who is the other person who uh, is our co-host of the podcast, um, Dr. Nate Chinock. So there are many people who one crosses paths with without realizing how important they can be in one's life. It could be a work colleague, a neighbor, an acquaintance. And while at the beginning they may seem like another person that is good to know, it's through the evolution of a social relationship that one realizes how important that person really is. Such is my time with Dr. Nate Chinock on the show itself. When I first knew him, he was in an office near mine downstairs. And while he was recruited due to his sterling research credentials, what I realized from him was that he has a very lively personality that goes beyond just turning the brain's energy to the max. Young and spry with a close appearance to one of my favorite actors, Jimmy Stewart, I realized that we would have a friendly relationship at work. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know at the time much about his past life before he started working with us. I knew that he came from Chicago, was into tennis, had a strong taste in, mu in music, and reminded me in some ways of myself. Getting to know him more reminded me that work isn't just about what you do, but what you do what it with. Somehow, as Dr. Shinnok will explain, we plan to begin a podcast devoted to our work for the Els for Autism Foundation, and one that can explore and discuss autism from a manner that came from the hearts and minds of the community, whether one has autism or one has familiarity with the subject. It is a testament to our professional relationship that I have never gotten tired of him during all these recordings. <laughs> sure, there are some people at work who are friendly with, who you are friendly with, but to commit to 30 episodes... Well, for me, it is basically talking to a friend. The way I talk to him on this program with my, the way I talk on this program with my co-host isn't too different from the way I would talk to him outside of the show. Really, it is just adding structure to our normal conversations. How many people can you say that about? So for this 30th episode, I would like to have an interview or rather a discussion with my co-host, Dr. Nate Shanock. So my first question to you, uh, co-host and partner in crime, uh, what led you to the path you are on working with the autism community in a research capacity? Well, first of all, Merrick, thank you for that very generous introduction. And I, I don't feel like I'm deserving of half of those accolades that were put forward, especially the, the John Stewart lookalike comparison. But, you know, thank you nonetheless. So I want to, first of all, apologize to our listeners for my vocal quality during this podcast. Um, I'm a little bit hoarse, a tiny bit under the weather here, as we all will be in South Florida. Unfortunately, the next couple of days, um, you know, we're under some increment weather. And I want to just take a minute here to wish everyone throughout the state of Florida 
um, the best, best of luck the next couple of days. We hope that everybody stays safe and, you know, um, that the storm veers as much away from impacting people in our state as, as much as possible. So moving back to the question here, you know, um, I do have a, an introduction story or an origin story, as we like to say on the podcast. We always ask our listeners, what inspired you to begin working in this field? And for me, my interest in autism did occur pretty early on in my life. It was actually in the sixth grade that I had a classmate who was very different from other students in the class. And I didn't know at the time what made this student different, but I did notice that they like to, um, they like to talk about sports um, for, for minutes, even hours of the day. And when we'd speak about football or, or baseball games from previous days, this person would recite statistics to a T um, that occurred and they would even be able to report Mickey Mantle's batting average in 1968. And I thought, I thought it was very impressive. And this student um, also enjoyed playing sports very much. And we noticed that if, if he didn't make a shot on the basketball court, then he would, he would end up repeating the shot until he got it right, until he actually made the shot. And so it wasn't until a few months after meeting this friend um, where, you know, he, I got to know him a little bit better and his, his family um, actually spoke to me about his diagnosis of, of having autism. And, you know, it was very interesting. They asked me to basically look out for him at school. And there were some kids that, you know, would, would tease him or engage in some bullying. And they asked me to, to look out for him. And I was really happy and enthusiastic to have that, that job. Um, Cause he was a, a very good friend. Um, we have lost touch. Uh, currently this was back when I was a kid living in Chicago and my parents moved me to Florida shortly before I started high school. So I have lost touch with most of my Chicago friends, but if any of you are listening by some chance, you know, uh, a warm hello. And um, so that was, that was integral for forming a basic interest that I had in the autism community. And then while I was a student at Florida Atlantic University in the, the PhD program for experimental psychology, I attended a research talk from Dr. Jack Scott, who is one of the directors of the FAU Card Center, the Center for Autism Related Disabilities. And he's still a good friend to this day. He's also a good friend of the Yells for Autism Foundation. But he gave a talk on you know, all the services that 
FAU card provides as far as linking providers with, um, with families that have a child with autism. He also spoke about the fascinating research going on throughout the campus. And I saw that as an opportunity to introduce myself to Dr. Scott. And later on, I had a close working relationship with Dr. Mary Ellen Quinn Lunny, and they helped me get involved um, with autism research as part of my thesis project. And, you know, the project was looking at facial emotion recognition in individuals with autism compared to neurotypical individuals. Um, and we also looked at brain activation patterns during this task. And the goal was to really just fine tune our understanding of you know, how individuals with autism process facial emotions differently. And then can we devise therapeutic tools to help um, with that important ability? So that was my path, my journey to working in this field. And then of course, my relationship with Dr. Scott and Dr. Quinn Lunny um, allowed me to begin working at the foundation Dr. Scott actually introduced me to Dr. Satello, who, of course, uh, made the magic happen. And I'm so very grateful that I've had the opportunity to to work with the foundation. That's uh, definitely doesn't explain why you became uh, Nate man. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was expecting something along the lines of you found some radioactive chemical and then you became Nate man and you're. Basically, your superpower is the power of research. <laughs> well, they do call me magnetic man for a different reason now, but I think we'll get to that in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what are you currently working on in your research that you're most excited about and what impacts could it have on the autism community? Okay, so... I want to point out that I still am partnered with the foundation on some, some very exciting research projects. You know, we just finished collecting data on a multi-site investigation of our Game on Golf program. We published a study on the results back in 2019, which showed that our golf therapy program, which infuses autism learning, um, or sorry, aut autism, uh, autism learning uh, goals into each lesson plan, we found that this program leads to important benefits as far as social behaviors, communication, and also motor functioning. And so we're now testing that program across four different international sites. And we're still analyzing the results, but we're very enthusiastic about the possibility of this program and also our game on tennis program for serving as a valuable therapeutic approach to, you know, stimulating social skills in a very fun and, and recreational environment. But aside from that, I am also serving as the director of a facility called the Delray Center for Brain Science. 
And this is, as you may have guessed, located in Delray Beach, Florida. And we're part of a larger um, outpatient mental health facility called the Delray Center for Healing. So we're one branch that works specifically on what I like to call brain-based therapeutics. And our hallmark treatment is known as transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS for short. It's much easier to say TMS, especially when you don't have much of a voice. And this is an FDA approved treatment that involves the delivery of magnetic pulses set at different frequencies delivered to different areas of the brain. And it has FDA approval for major depressive disorder, for obsessive compulsive disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder as well. For depression, there's about a 70% effectiveness rate, which means that seven out of 10 people that have this treatment experience a significant improvement in their symptoms. We are also exploring this treatment in other avenues, in other clinical conditions. Um, a major goal is to pilot it as a treatment for neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and dementia. And also we're exploring developmental conditions as we're learning that it's an extremely safe treatment where the only side effect is essentially a minor headache. When we talk about brain stimulation, people oftentimes do get a little bit fearful because of what they've heard about something like, you know, electroconvulsive shock therapy, but TMS is extremely different from that treatment. It's a very controlled um, energy that you're using and it's targeting a very specific network of the brain to help with the condition. So we are, <clears throat> we just finished up a study looking at how TMS can change resting state brain activity in major depressive disorder. And so we had our participants um, go through a clinical EEG scan at the beginning of their treatment. And then again, at the end of the treatment after the 36 sessions of TMS. And we found that the treatment um, pretty incredibly did lead to a shift in, pat in um, brain activity away from these individuals having too much slow wave or sleepy brain activity in their frontal lobes. And so given that TMS is potentially a, a tool for boosting the activity in the frontal lobe and leading to healthier connections as well, we're very interesting in how this can pertain to, you know, something like attention deficit, uh, hyperactivity disorder, and also autism spectrum disorder, conditions that are broadly affecting, you know, sustained attention and executive functioning abilities, vital skills that are driven by the prefrontal lobe. So we really hope to be able to extend this treatment to different populations, 
And we're also working on a potential partnership with Scripps Neuroscience on the campus of FAU Jupiter to be able to examine blood samples um, and look for whether TMS can reduce neuroinflammation and also possibly stimulate a substance called BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is critically involved with the formation of new neurons, new cells in the brain, as well as healthier connections between the cells. To all our listeners, this is why Nate shares all the smart stories and I share all the emotional stories. <laughs> yeah, we make a pretty good team. You have to admit. Yeah. Um, so speaking of all that, um, so what drove you to link up with me on this crazy ride to create a podcast for the Ells for Autism Foundation? I'm really happy that you brought up this question. It's very fitting for our 30th episode. First of all, I want to give a huge congratulations to you, Merrick, because Merrick is the engine that drives this podcast. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a, the, the happy-go-lucky co-pilot, you know, but Merrick really, um, he, he gets in touch with our, with our guests. He does a great deal of the writing and the editing of the show. Um, he is, uh, again, just a, an integral part of this whole process. But I, I have to say, when it came to starting this podcast, it's kind of a funny story. You know, Merrick, when I first started working at the foundation, um, <clears throat> I would say there was probably a nine or 10 to one female to male ratio for the employees, which you do oftentimes see in uh, psychological or developmental centers. And not that there's anything wrong with that, of course, but I was pretty excited to see Merrick working at the, at the front desk. Um, and uh, as I got to know Merrick more and more, I realized that he wasn't just this, this friendly person that you know, greeted everybody so nicely, but he also had these tremendous interests. He started sharing with me a song of the week where he would, he would give me um, access to listen to a classic rock and roll song from the 60s or 70s. And he'd give me a fascinating background story on the band and how the song came into existence. Um, he also shared with me some of his, his music and his writing abilities. And I would say we pretty much instantly clicked just on our mutual interests and also possibly because we were two of the only guys working at the foundation at the time. So naturally when we were eating lunch one day, we were talking about one research story that, that had come out and I can't remember exactly what it was, but we just, I think it was, it was probably Merrick that had the idea, you know, hey, this is a really interesting conversation. What if we just recorded us speaking at lunch one of these days and 
we we tried to spin together a podcast and sure enough i think we recorded um a, a 10 minute demo that we then took to anyone working at the foundation that would have ears for it and we got a lot of positive reception surprisingly and, and we did it on one of uh it's either my phone or your phone that we did it on yeah i think it was it was on my phone and i even started sharing it with family and and friends and it just seemed like at that point it was the right thing to do to yeah, be I, in the podcast yeah i remember um even before um you know we started doing it i was uh and i i don't mind disclosing things to the public but i was in the middle of taking prozac for my uh you know depressive disorder and all that stuff and it it led to some very bad depersonalization side effects and i was in the middle of wisconsin on one of my uh, crazy like I want to go to all 50 states and so I just happened to be there for a Thanksgiving trip I think it was Thanksgiving you know Thanksgiving of uh 2019 Thanksgiving of 2019 and I had that in the um because I was with my family I had that in the vehicle and I remember playing it to my parents thinking to myself this is interesting let me see what they think. And actually, that was one of the proudest moments in the whole trip was having them listen to the uh, episode or that little like 10 minute thing. And I was thinking to myself that out of everything that I picked for that trip, because I usually would arrange the music and I usually would arrange the restaurants and I usually would arrange everything um, for a trip like that <clears throat> um, holiday trip. I actually uh, was like, you know what? I feel very, very depressed right now. I don't know what to do because I don't know how to get rid of these feelings I'm getting from the Prozac I'm taking. It's making me feel like I need to be hospitalized. It's giving me an out-of-body experience and it's making me feel really, really awful about everything. And I'm getting memories that I may not be able to retain. I had all these doubts in myself. And that one little 10-minute thing was the brightest. It was like a bright, shining light of hope in the middle of all this madness. And so I, I felt like from there, I was like, this, this has some promise to it. This is a really, really cool uh, spirit of promise to it. Yeah. It was just so fun as well i think we launched that demo during the pandemic at some point and those were pretty dark days for a lot of people and it really did lift us up um you know like you were saying merrick i know it lifted me up out of some depression i was having too and um yeah 30 episodes later still going strong well, the interesting thing is that when you talk about the pandemic, we actually uh, broadcasted the first episode and you can find it on our website. It's like 17 minutes long. And we did that. It was either March or April of 2020. So we basically at the very, very start of the pandemic, 
one of the first things that we did as a foundation was to put out that podcast episode. And so it's like a pandemic era podcast, basically. And, you know, but it definitely does transcend uh, the pandemic because, you know, we're we're in such a different place right now than we were two years ago. And it's still going strong because there's just a lot of promise of having this kind of medium out there. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it and it's it's evolved a lot too. Um, the different uh, sections of the episode, and I would say we've been really fortunate to have some amazing guests on the show. Um, Merrick, I wanted to, since we're talking about the 30th episode, I did want to quickly ask you, and then I'll share mine too. Do you have a, like a favorite episode or a favorite moment? Uh, we had some episodes that were recorded before. I think that there is like a spot where I felt like we had such a great run of episodes, such a great run of shows because the discussions... We were having such provocative and thoughtful commentary and we picked such interesting stories and the guests that we had on, we had such good interviews um, and we had such good, um, one of the more interesting ones that we did was that special episode where it was just an interview with John Donvan and Karen Zucker of yeah. the, in a different key, um, the story of autism, the book and the movie and what happened was is that I got the book and I read the whole thing and I got the documentary and I watched the whole thing and I came prepared and uh, we were just having a little bit of a discussion and, you know, they, they were the basis basically for that three-part article that I did on the blog about, you know, the history of the autism diagnosis. And it, it was very interesting to go from that book to know about client number one uh and donald uh great triplet and to see him in person in that movie and then to be able to interview them because they weren't necessarily you know they weren't staff members they weren't members of the advisory board um they they went to a few of our things before but they didn't have you know that kind of connection but to me, they were like such big personalities um, that, you know, it was really, really great to have them on because, you know, they're reporters, journalists, and they wrote probably one of the better, if not one of the most authoritative tomes I've read about the history of the autism diagnosis. And for me, I mean, I didn't really say it during the interview with Dr. Shore, but history it's my, it's my big thing. Anything with history in it allows me to excel. And so that was really, really cool. I just really, really liked talking to them. And, you know, I love talking to our staff members. I love talking to our advisory board members. And uh, I, I just feel like that there's just so much to like about what we have done and what we have talked about during some of these episodes that we've had. Yeah, that's really well said. I would, I would echo that sentiment. Um, every episode is so special in its own way, and um, 
you know, definitely having the authors of In a Different Key on was just, was a highlight. They, they put together such a, a magnificent and um, powerful piece of work there. And um, yeah, I, I want to say thanks for, for interviewing me. It's, it's an honor to be, to, to be amongst the ranks of some of our great staff members and, and also just um, terrific guests that we've had on the show. Yeah. Um, personally, if we ever do interview Dr. Temple Grandin for whatever reason, I'll still put you on that same pedestal. I'll still put you as either equal to her or above her because you mean that much to the program here. Wow. <laughs> that means a lot. Thank you. So uh, my final question that I would like to ask you is how do you feel about having 30 episodes of the four autism podcast under your belt? And are you ready to stick to where we will venture to 50 episodes of this podcast? It feels great. It's a great milestone. And yeah, cheers to having many more episodes and hopefully continuing to have some stellar guests and hopefully getting my voice back. <laughs> well, certainly you will. And certainly, uh, you know, it's been quite a ride. Um, but it's been, you know, it's been over like close to three years now. You would have imagined that. Uh, yeah, it's it's been an absolute pleasure and it's really helped uh, it with Merrick and I, he mentioned it earlier, but for us it really is just like being out to lunch together and, and getting to have a conversation on these topics, which really interest us immensely. And, and so it's a joy for us to do this. And I hope that that does come through the, the airwaves to our listeners, but uh, you've probably heard us cracking up uh, at certain times when we shouldn't be as well. So, yeah, that, it's all part of the joy. <laughs> yeah, if I was to give any advice to uh, anyone who's looking to start their own, you know, radio gig or career or podcast or anything, is to find the person who you talk to the most, not the person who you talk to the most in an argumentative state, but a person that you talk to the most in kind of a friendly state and proceed to figure out if that would work as a podcast or as a radio broadcasting gig, because that would probably be the best person to have as your co-host. That's a pro tip right there. Yeah. Pro tip from a uh, amateur. <laughs> All right, Not in well, the slightest. Well, thank you so much for taking uh, your busy time, even though this is a part of the whole um, establishment here, uh, to uh, <laughs> finally show everyone who has been listening for like close to three years the man behind the mask. Well, I would have been here anyway, so <laughs> no, no problem time-wise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much.
for the interview. Thank you. On to the next part. (laughs) I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I'm flying through the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Moth is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide Well I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high like a butterfly, I fly into the air so high. Oh, like a butterfly, like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours, you can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind. In the future, your eyes will light up to think that I was once a poor caterpillar. Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly So high Oh, like a butterfly I'm flying to the air So high Just like a butterfly Ah. Uh-huh.